Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, and the Something Stinks edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell. It is April 3rd, 2014, and here in the newsroom studio to help fill me in on the highlights and lowlights of the past seven days in Alberta politics, our provincial affairs columnist, Graham Thompson. Hello. Columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello, everyone. So I am really going to need to rely on the three of you this week since I've spent the last few days in a spring break bubble with my kids. We want to deal with three issues. One is definitely outside the dome in the oil fields of the Peace River area. Then closer to the dome, quite a bit closer, we will talk about the federal building and why people have been throwing around the phrase Sky Palace. And finally, we'll talk about the pocketbooks of various political parties and how that plays into the fights we're seeing. And then we'll move into good stuff from the gallery. This week, the Alberta Energy Regulator issued a strongly worded report related to oil sands activities in the Peace River area. Sheila, you've been keeping really close tabs on this issue. Can you tell us what the Alberta Energy Regulator was doing in the Peace Country and and what we learned this week in the report? Well, as most of the listeners will remember, for the past couple of years, residents up there have been fighting against very stinky and troubling emissions from from uh, um, bit- heated bitumen tanks that are just releasing into the atmosphere. And seven families moved out of the area. Their health uh, problems, dizziness, headaches, uh, cognitive impairment, a list of them. And so the regulator had no actual, because these tanks are not uh, covered under regulations, it had no way to shut them down or issue orders about them. So it decided to hold a public inquiry to find out what's going on, and that's what they did in January, and this week we got the report. So what did it say? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, The report basically said to Baytex in particular, you have four months to install pollution control equipment, but it also told all the the operators up there to uh, clean up the emissions because they have the potential to cause health problems. So every Everybody, Shell, Review Oil, Husky, um, all have to uh, get better at containing these emissions. So what what kind of emissions are, I know we've talked about this before on the show, but can you remind me, so what do they need to do differently? Because as always, when I think of oil sands projects, I think either of how they're doing it up in Fort McMurray, or I'm thinking about, you know, the in situ stuff that's been going on in... Well, that's an excellent question, Sarah, because what's happening here is a new production method not used anywhere else, where in most in situ, you send the heat down into the ground and you melt the bitumen under there. So any fumes from heating a can of oil, whatever, would be stuck underground. Here, they bring the bitumen up and they heat it on surface tanks. And if you don't have a closed system to collect those emissions, you can imagine having a can of oil in your dining room table and you start heating it up, it starts to smell. Companies like Baytex did not collect those emissions. They just let them vent into the air, and those were the things that were troubling area residents. It's a new production method. The regulator did not have regulations to cover it, to cover those emissions. The regulator regulates sour gas emissions very closely, but does not regulate this production process where you have smelly bitumen hydrocarbons that are causing problems. Okay, so does this order or this report that they 
put out. Is this a mandatory thing that these companies now have to do, or is it merely a suggestion that in four months you probably should cover these tanks? Okay, so the report goes to it was a it was a public inquiry panel. Four members of the regulators did the panel. It now goes to the CEO of the regulator, Jim Ellis. Those guys have a look at it, and they have two weeks to respond, and I'm sure they're going to say, we're going to implement all of these. If they don't, <laughs> there'll be an even bigger problem. Wow. So what's your reaction to, to hearing about a report like this come through the Alberta Energy Regulator, Graham and Paula? Do you, did this surprise you to hear that they you know came down with this strongly worded report? In a way, it did surprise me, because this government's got a history of having these panels that tend to give rubber stamps to the uh, the industry. And in fact, this to me shows how too often we have the cart before the horse. We let the industry do these things and then figure out later on rules to govern what they're doing after the fact. Um, but it's actually, it is to me um, promising that they actually did come down so hard in this company. But it seems that the evidence was so overwhelming. People were really getting sick that th- this, the AER could not do anything but bring down a report like this. And really, as I think I've said in an earlier session when we've talked about this, it's not even a question of being able to prove long-term health effects. The quality of life of living around stuff that just stinks this much, you know, even if they don't have any kind of evidence that it's going to cause cancer or that it's really causing cognitive difficulties in the short term, I mean, it's a total compromise of your quality of life if you can't enjoy your own property because of the air pollution. To my mind, you don't have to prove that there are health problems. You just have to prove that you have caused such a diminishment in my capacity to enjoy my own personal property. Now, what this is going to mean for the families who've already left is a lot less clear. And of course, as Sheila says, we still have to wait and see if they will actually act on this. I would like to say, I would like to come back in two weeks and be pleasantly surprised. What was the reaction from residents in the area when they heard this report? Well, they were very relieved that their the case they've been making for the last two years was pretty much vindicated. They've been going that, through this for two years? Yes, yes. And ma- many of them left two years ago, a year ago. And actually, while the hearing was going on, another family, their baby was so ill, they decided they better leave too. So this has been a very big issue up there for a very long time. And so they're very, they feel just, okay, finally, someone took us seriously. They understood what we're facing. And I think it is significant that the report also calls for an investigation of the connection between these fumes and, um, and health aspects that actually hasn't been investigated very much. Where the, where the EER knows there are health problems like hydrogen sulfide, which we all know can be fatal, they regulate it very closely. But no one's ever investigated all kinds of PAHs and everything that come off bitumen tanks. This isn't just a bit of a, you know, smell problem. Well, the Alberta Energy Regulator Report was a big piece of news for people living in and around these uh, CHOPS tanks. CHOPS with cold, chops. cold, what does that stand for again? Cold Heavy Oil Production with Sand. I Thank have you, to, Sarah. I have to chops. memorize that new <laughs> acronym. Yeah. Um, another bundle of stories started to break last Friday that certainly had the those who are kind of obsessed with politics like ourselves chatting. Graham, do you want to talk a little bit about why last Friday was such an insane day at the legislature? Yeah, a lot of things happened. The government a data dump, basically. A lot of information. Uh, they voluntarily gave us all these severance packages for Redford's staff who had been, who are departing after she, she stepped down. They got more um, information on the Sky Palace, uh, more on emails regarding her trip to South Africa and how um, she was insistent upon having a, 
her aide come to South Africa. There was no discussion about her trying to save money. It's just basically no one discussed the cheapest airfare. Strictly just get her back home. Um, but yeah, the, the Sky Palace has been sort of an issue that's <coughs> really interesting. This is the the penthouse suite that the premier's office had asked to be built uh, on the top floor of the um, federal building, the old federal building about a block north of the legislature in Edmonton, 10-story building. It's been vacant since 1990, roughly, and the government's been renovating it. It's going to cost $375 million, turn it into office space for MLAs and government. Top floor, the premier's office had asked for a special penthouse suite to be built for the premier and her daughter and, and so they could do VIP, um, I guess, um, entertaining there and things like that. It never actually got built, but what's happened, the media, CBC, got onto this story and uh, broke the story saying this is an example of entitlement that Redford actually wanted to have this this, uh, this suite built up there. Uh, so we got more information from the uh, the government last week. It seemed that what they're doing is a data dump. They're trying to get all the bad news out, tie it to Redford, and then she's her ship is going down. So it, the severance packages, the Sky Palace, uh, the emails regarding a trip to South Africa, get it out with the media. Her ship is sinking, tie it to the mast and watch it go under and hopefully it will go under without a, without a ripple and they can move on from here. Let's go specifically to the Sky Palace and we'll have to talk about how we've come to coin this term Sky Palace. It's not that tall a building for God's sakes, but I guess it's up there. The federal building was a project that when Premier Stalmach was still premier, he announced they were going to renovate that, right? And it was really his gift to Edmonton, Sarah. I mean, the federal building is a beautiful piece of architecture. And as the name suggests, it was once a federal government office building. And when the feds moved out to Canada Place on Jasper Avenue in 97th, they left the building abandoned for years. And the province, um, it was sort of a land swap, and the province was stuck with this. It was uh, a huge renovation. And I think three summers ago now, I was working on this story, and I went up to the top and I mean it was a massive renovation and it was going to be Ed Stelmack's gift to Edmonton to the downtown core to to take this building that had been vacant for all those years to renovate it and much of the cost isn't the building itself it's the parkade underneath uh, which is a whole other issue so I mean I I have long written columns in favor of saving the federal building. I was less enthused when the Stelmat government announced the project because of the cost, which was really high then, which included, as I say, uh, an underground parkade and then a big surface plaza atop it. But I've been writing about this building for years, and I couldn't figure out, having years ago interviewed the site manager and the architect and all of these people, what was taking so long. So in addition to the optics of making it look as though Redford's staff was designing her a royal palace at the top of the building. Now, this was never built. You know, the you know, it's important to remember that this never actually happened. It's an imaginary sky palace. But it's the optics of of sort of supposing that she needs this special thing, the optics of the fact that that she had an expectation that she was going to be premier in almost in perpetuity. And finally, even though they didn't go to the expense of building this. What we still don't know is what did it cost to do the designs and to to make those kinds of change orders very late in the major renovation of a building? How has this delayed the coming 
the completion of the project. So Sheila, you were trying to help sort through all these documents last Friday after Charles Rusnell and Jenny Russell broke the original story on CBC, and then there was there was more documents that that came to light. So do we know was this a premier's residence originally envisioned as part of the federal project, or do so it wasn't it wasn't part of the original no, no, project? It was not, no, absolutely no, not. No, the, so then, at what point yeah. did it get put into the project? And more importantly, like. Everyone, you guys have both said, Paul and Graham, well, it wasn't built, but at what point did it stop being built? Well, that's one of the mysteries. There are many mysteries in this. One is, where did Redford get this idea? It did, uh, after going through 400, 500 pages of emails, uh, suddenly November 15th, there's a series of emails saying, proceed with the plan to build two conference rooms. So clearly it was called off in late November. That's when Wayne Drysdale was the minister. So I can't say that Rick McIver had anything to do with this, but I don't really know. No one knows yet who actually called it off. Then there's the question of how much did Wayne Drysdale know? The bizarreness of this was that the premier staff was dealing directly with the architecture and not going through the, the government department managing the project. So that was a very odd thing. But cheery little add-ons from the Premier's office would be, don't worry, I'll inform Minister Drysdale's office about this. But there's never an email from Drysdale's office in there to say thanks for the information or how much they knew. I'm sure Drysdale had to know something about it, but we don't exactly know how much. Um, and so who actually killed the project in the end? Because, again, it came to a sudden stop. And it, it, it was imaginary in a sense, but they were down to asking for furniture and color swatches. I think it was getting pretty close to having happened. Right. And then McIver doesn't come in until a year later. So for a year, nothing happened. Who called it off and what was happening in that year is still a mystery. Right, because Rick McIver on Friday was saying, yes. well, when I became minister, I heard rumors about this, but I made sure that it did not, that nothing happened. But that right? was a year later after those emails and indicated. It was two conference yeah. rooms. To be fair, it isn't. It doesn't seem to me to be completely crazy that in a major government conference center, you might build a private room for the premier of the day to be able to go and have a little downtime. Um, you know, have have ten minutes of quiet time. But doesn't it, she have the she, premier's she, office? Yeah, well, and and a couch there, I'm sure. But and but, she must have a condo somewhere in Edmonton. Well, they but, all do. So. But 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 that is but that is the question, right? I mean, it's the idea that it was sort of going to be residential. And my favorite part of this whole story, because it's so deliciously Canadianly bureaucratic, is when the city gets involved because the city comes along and says, "Excuse me, this building is not zoned for residential use, and so you will have to go to a public hearing in front of the city council to make your." private secret apartment, you know, uh, up for a zoning question. Now, it's a very good question whether the city, in fact, overstepped its authority because this is provincial land. But nonetheless, my favorite part of this was sort of the the back and forth of the emails with the people from the city who were, you know, they don't care. She's not the boss of them. That is very nerdy of you, Paula. Actually, I thought the part I loved was their response to the city was, well, just tell, just remind the city we're the province, so they need to buzz off. And if you don't do what we want, we're going to get a ministerial order to approve our plans. That's outrageous. I was going to ask all of you, why is this pissing people off so much? But now I I think... Well, I think we've outlaid it out here. There's an argument the government is trying to make quietly right now, saying, look, the premier needs a residence in Edmonton, and people, premiers who come from Calgary have an apartment up here. So they're thinking, is it so outrageous to have an apartment? The minute you have a penthouse as opposed to a regular condo, that's a problem optically. 
Well, Peter Lougheed bought a house up here. Let's yeah. remember that. And, and Ralph Klein, and to so his credit. I mean, Ralph Klein kept a, kept an apartment in Edmonton. And, you know, I am not the president of the Ralph Klein fan club, but I don't think he ever asked to have his own, uh, you know, royal suite. Right. right. If, so this that's, that's this my is a point. little revisionism here. Yeah. yeah. No, my point is, no, the point is, yeah. the premier needs a place to live in Edmonton. Fine. But you don't need to build a penthouse in the top floor of the federal building. Well, but building. don't all MLAs from out of town need a place to live? I mean, the Premier obviously, I guess, is here a lot more than every other MLA from out of town. But why don't we just build a condo for all out of town MLAs, like by that you know, measure? What, what happens now they're elected? You know, you mean like, you mean like from all parties, like an all party? Yeah, um, party condo. Like, like a, like a <laughs> frat party house. Condo. An all party all the time oh, condo. A, a, a frat great. house, basically. My, I guess my point is, I just don't see why, if, if you're worried about having special accommodations, for the premier, why you wouldn't then build a facility for all out-of-town MLAs because they all need to be in Edmonton at different points. The MLA hostel. I like that idea. Do we know where the term Sky Palace even came from? I saw Dean Bennett from Canadian Press tweeting it, but I don't know if he's the original person to be credited with such a term. That's the I first place no I saw it. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll find out another mystery. We have to say hashtag Sky Palace. Hashtag yeah. Sky Palace. So on the one hand, we've got this penthouse suite in the federal building that the news of that is pissing people off, it seems like, as much as the severances of uh, outgoing staff from the former premier's office. And then on the other hand, we've got stories breaking about political fundraising. What do we know about the state of party finances, Graham, that we didn't know last week? I think we better sense now how the PCs are in more trouble than we thought. We'd heard they're having problems raising money. And what we're seeing, in the, the, the figures show right now at the provincial level, uh, last year the Tories got about $2.8 million. Wild Rose beat them, got roughly $3 million. But more than that, um, the Wild Rose actually has, end of the year, has a surplus at the end of the year. The Tories are actually running a deficit, $136,000 deficit, but they have a debt now, they have a million-dollar debt. Now that is interesting. That is unheard of for this party. They normally have four or five million dollars in the bank. Right now they have a, a million dollar debt uh, on the books. So this is showing they're, they're still raising money, but they're being beaten by the wild rose. Also their expenses are up for some reason. I don't really know why. So their expenses are, are extraordinarily high. And, and they're saying it's mostly to do with, with, with new technology and, and updating the party. They are spending a lot of money and they're in debt. Now they're arguing, of course, they have this, this trust fund um, that actually right, the, has the, the Tap Cal Trust. Yeah, this secret fund that has, we don't know how much money it has in it. They're saying, look, we still have, we're not actually in debt. We have money in this fund, this secretive fund, that we can actually, in a sense, pay off our debt. Well, they can't because that fund has certain strings attached to it. Having said that, it's a fund that we don't know much about. So overall, this is not looking good for the party. And the party is, they're not arguing. When this story first broke, by the way, on Tuesday, the party would not talk to us, they wouldn't give us a comment. Yesterday, the release, and usually saying, look, if you take into account all the money raised at the local level, not just the provincial level, they're actually got a million dollars more last year than the Wild Rose. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at on this pie chart here so the, from so the PCL. Right, so if you tie in all the fundraising, provincial and local levels, they're saying they're actually making more money than the Wild Rose. But they wouldn't talk to us to explain this on Tuesday. And also, um, they're having problems even within the party to get people to actually raise money. I think the trust fund is the most damning part of this whole story. I mean, you have to go back to 1977 when Peter Lougheed, who has a saintly reputation in this province, which those of us who are old enough to remember when he was premier know is a little bit of historical revisionism. All right, so back in 1977, the Tories set up this trust fund for themselves to be the, I guess you'd call it the anchor 
for their campaign. So the idea is that the trust fund isn't so much that they take the money out of it as that they use it as collateral to finance loans. Now, no other party has this kind of trust fund. And when I was tweeting about this indignantly yesterday, people said to me, well, back in 1977, when the rules were different, other parties could have set up this kind of trust fund. That's convenient, given that the Waldrose Party didn't exist in 1977, that the Alberta Party didn't exist in 1977, and that in 1977, the Liberals had not one seat in the provincial legislature. So to say that, oh, if other parties had just had the same foresight as the Conservatives, they too could have set up secret trust funds uh, is a little bit rich. What does this mean for the party's leadership race and Dave Hancock's time as leader? Well, I, I think anybody looking at it is really looking at it. Is this a party where the brand can actually be fixed now? I actually think the Sky Palace is pretty damaging. So especially people coming in from the outside are going to have to make that calculation. Maybe I can win this, but can I actually win the next election? And think is right now, no one's running in that leadership race. It's true. Um, you know, if you go back, if, if, you go, if you go back, if you go back to um, the previous ones, we always had somebody in the back pocket. Waiting, waiting to go. This time around, there's nobody. It's partly because she ju- dumped this on us in a, a real, real hurry. Also, because I think they're still figuring out who actually can win this, and do they really want to win it? And so, tied back to the Sky Palace and everything else, especially the Sky Palace and uh, the trip to um, South Africa. What they're trying to do right now is tie all the bad stuff to Redford and throw her overboard. And so they're hoping to say all the bad news is her. And in fact, I think that the, the polls showing that people overall like government policy, they just didn't like Redford. And now what they're hoping, and by jettisoning Redford, they're hoping then to get a bump in the polls. I'd like to see what the actual polls are saying right now when it comes to PCs versus Wild Rose. And of course, then it'll momentum over the summer, get a new leader, and they're still hoping they can actually get it, like, like last time, get a new leader, reinvent themselves under a new leader, and win the next election. The question is going to be, is the brand too badly damaged at this point? And that's a question we can't answer. And I think it's really, actually, it's very interesting. I, I, like Sarah, have been away and out of the office. I just got back last night from a different other province. And I thought when I landed here that there would be news about leadership contenders and some serious tire kicking. And instead, I was quite surprised that when I, you know, standing at the baggage carousel last night, the, you know, the CBC News line was, Jim Dinning, not interested in leadership. So who is interested in leadership? It's very quiet. So I think one of the big problems is that everyone's probably trying to pick a campaign song. And when we did good <laughs> stuff in the gallery last week, I put out a call for, I'm trying to create, I'd like us to create a press gallery playlist where people suggest what would be their own personal campaign song. So not something you suggest snarkily for another party, because there are lots of those, and I came up with a lot of good ones for my spoof campaign. But I'm looking for songs that what you would really use for your fictional campaign. So Paula, you actually came up with an example. Can you give us what your fictional song would be? Yes, I, I will read you some of the lyrics from it. If you don't like what you got, why don't you change it? If your world is all screwed up, rearrange it. And that is, of course, troopers raise a little hell. Would you like me to sing? <laughs> that would be that would be my campaign song. Nice, Trooper. nice can con. Raise a little hell. Raise Excellent. a little hell. Raise a little hell. Raise a little hell. Okay. Fa- failing which, if we wanted something a little more contemporary to update my image, um, I might go with Serena Ryder's Stompa. The lyrics being, you know, people working every night and day, never give yourself no time, got too many bills to pay, 
slow down. Nothing's going to disappear. If you give yourself some room, there's some music to hear. Gotta get up. Listen to me. Clap your hands. Stomp your feet. I think that both of those would definitely work for your fictional campaign uh, for any party. So I think that because we've talked a little long, I want to continue this call out to listeners for another week to compile. I want to have like at least a decent 20 song playlist. I've got some suggestions. I've had to enlist my children because all my 80s hair metal bands, the lyrics are not appropriate for uh, political campaigns. So we'll hopefully present this next week, a press gallery playlist. But let's have the real good stuff from the gallery suggestions or th- that aren't musical, perhaps. Graham, why don't we start with you? You you look like you've got something really exciting to share. <laughs> it's not exciting. It's important. Uh, on Monday, the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its latest report showing just how much trouble we're in when it comes to climate change. And uh, to me, this is it's not a great read. It's 2,500 pages. I wouldn't read that. There's a, there's a summary. It's only about 44 pages. Read that. I still hear from people who deny it's real, it's a hoax. They keep telling me it's not a hoax. Climate change is real, and we've got to deal with it. And this report is saying it, it's, it's, it's hurting us already. It's going to hurt um, a lot of um, food crops and things like that that we need to, to survive. It's going to hurt poorer countries more than uh, richer countries. But we're all in the boat together. We're seeing the effects already, and the IPCC report on Monday is definitely worth reading. Thank you. And we'll post a link on our Facebook page and on our website. Sheila, what's your good stuff from the gallery? Okay, before you abandon the song thing, okay. I'm oh, yeah, put on my, got early, song. my early theme song, and I'm just starting my campaign. But right. I want to start, unlike Paul, I want to start on the positive front. So I think we should do Annie Lennox, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Oh! And you can just imagine your Alberta with Sweet Dreams. Or sisters are doing it for themselves. I can, see, another, you, I can see you on yeah. stage with <laughs> the music pumping and everyone exactly. cheering and clapping. Yes, okay. okay, well, thank okay. you. And then... And then uh, and Sweet Dreams would include going to the Alberta Energy Regulator website and just having a quick look at that Baytex report because actually it's not very long. It's very clearly written, and I think you'll find some substantive things there. Okay, so we will post that link as well. And Paula? I do have a a really interesting article that I read uh, late last week in Chicago Magazine, and I found it on Twitter, and it's very, very timely right now in Alberta. Uh, In Calgary, we have a, a, a number of confirmed cases of measles. In Edmonton this morning, there was the first confirmed case of measles. And so this is a really interesting and well-written article in Chicago Magazine by a writer named Wet Moser, and it's headlined, Why Do Affluent, Well-Educated People Refuse Vaccines? And it's uh, a really thoughtful and non-judgmental look at the way people who get their information primarily from social media are being convinced not to vaccinate their kids. We're not talking about people who belong to... um, sort of religious sects or people who are in poverty, but people who are affluent and well-educated and who are nonetheless opting not to vaccinate. So it's a very, very uh, timely piece. And I think anybody out there who's getting their scientific information from Facebook and from from the internet, uh, if there's one thing on the internet you should read about vaccines, it would be this one, which is on Team Science, as am I. Okay, thanks for those suggestions. That will wrap up the Press Gallery for this week. For the third week in a row, you will be able to check out a video segment from the show, along with the podcast, thanks to our producer and multimedia journalist, Ryan Jackson. Now that we've hit three, that officially makes it a trend, and I guess that means that it's something that's just a part of the regular press gallery now. Ryan would like to know if you love the video, if you hate the video, or what could we do better from the video, more, less, etc. You can give us our feedback on 
Facebook, and on the website. To find the video and previous shows, go to edmontonjournal.com and dive into the opinion section. The press gallery is also posted on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can connect with us on our Facebook page, which I've said about 18 million times now is facebook.com slash thepressgallery. We'll be back in the press gallery next week.